Are we on now? Here we go. Hey, last week I've been hot. I mean, Tom's like, aren't you shirt on? That's it? He says, yeah, I'm, I'm good right now. We're standing like near the doorway. It's like, he's shaking his head. I'm like, oh, man. I wish it was just that. I've been hot all week. So, it's hot. Jeez. Ugh. Yeah, like I'm super high. There we go. Ah, there we go. Anyone else hot? Okay. Okay. Let me pray. It's good to see everybody. Again, since I know that some of us just came in during the worship, if you are hungry, after service we had a... Um, Adult Sunday school, actually church-wide Christmas breakfast, and there is plenty of food left over in the fellowship hall if you'd like uh, some food. So please feel free afterwards. And I may have you guys stand up during this sermon because I know that the worship was a little less, a little quiet this morning, probably because the food's starting to settle, right? Yeah, I ate a lot of food, so. But bow your heads with me before I, I preach this morning. Lord, we come to you, and I'm asking that you would replace me on the throne of my life, and that you would speak through me, and that you would give us a biblical understanding of repentance and what you require of us, not only in salvation, but on a lifestyle as well, a lifestyle of repentance. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week, I know that some people had heard for the first time the concept of uh, repentance in, in the gospel message, even though it has historically always been there. It's not that the gospel message, even in today's presentation, um, doesn't include it. It's just not emphasized enough as it is in the scriptures. And I showed that to you for the, really the last 1900 years. That's what the gospel message was. It's repent of sin and turn to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I want to begin, though, by talking about, as we get prepared for his coming, three types of people that uh, the scriptures talk about. And here we see them in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 3-3. Yes, get your Bibles out, because this is the only verse I think I put up there. Um, and you're going to have another Bible workout. So... This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, which would, I would say the Corinthian church would be your typical American church. It has issues, is the point I'm getting at. Um, and so, by the way, just to burst your bubble, people come and go to churches for various reasons, and they look for the perfect church. And if, the, if you do find a perfect church, don't go there, because you'll ruin it. Then also burst your bubble because there is no perfect church. Okay? This is a forgiven church. But speaking of a church that had some serious issues, Paul says this. The man without the spirit, and there's the first kind of person. So it's going to be like a, a, a interaction time and a sermon. What would we, another name be for a man without the spirit? An unbeliever. Yep. A heathen. 
In the Greek, it means Frank. And so... (laughs) Wait a minute, right? (laughs) He's awake, that's right. Roger's next, so... (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Yeah. So you have an unbeliever, right? The man without the spirit. And this, the unbeliever does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God because they're foolishness, or for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This, is, by the way, is why people don't come to Christ. When the gospel is presented to them, it makes no sense to them. They're at least at that point in time, not called, or they're never called. So spiritual, the basic spiritual, Debbie, wake up. I see you yawning. <laughs> Debbie's always fair game for me anyway, so <laughs> she knows that. Uh, they can't understand and grasp the concept because it's a spiritual understanding. How often did you read in the Gospels that the, the message, the meaning of the message was hidden from their eyes? God hadn't opened their eyes yet. Now we have the second person is the spiritual man. What will we call a spiritual man? They're a believer, and we're also going to see here as well that they're what we would call a spirit-filled believer. How do I say that? Well, we'll get there in a moment. But he makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? So a spiritual man has what? Mind of Christ. I mean, he makes judgments about all things. He knows the will of God, and he is living his life according to the will of God. He's making judgments about all things with the mind of Christ. So clearly he is directed by the mind of Christ, which is another way of saying he's directed by the Spirit. You with me so far? Brothers, now who is he talking to here? Christians, the brothers in Corinth. I could not address you as spiritual, as a what? A spirit-filled believer. But as what? Worldly, and he defines a worldly person, obviously as someone without the Spirit, but he's addressing them as that. And he defines it as they are mere infants in Christ. So they're believers, but they're not moving forward in the faith. Do you see that? They're they're immature Christians. And this is your third type of person. And this is what you have to do, because Paul did with these infants in Christ. These immature Christians. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. That's what Jesus did, by the way, with the disciples. I have more to tell you, but you are not ready for it. They were babes in Christ. Indeed, how does he know they're not ready for it? You are still not ready. You are still worldly. What does that mean? There is jealousy and quarreling among you. That is the way of the world. And see, are you not worldly? So they're arguing, they're jealous, and they're arguing within the church. You're acting like the ways of the world. And this is what he says. Are you not acting like what? Oops. Mere mere men. Mere men referring to who? Unbelievers. So you have believers that are acting like unbelievers. Their lifestyle looks like that of a... But they are believers. Yes. So here we have some pictures to help you. So what we call the natural person. You can see here that someone who has not received Christ, an unbeliever. So who's on? Who's controlling the life? Self. Direct, and they're they're directing their own decisions and actions, and that's the dots here. 
resulting in frustration, and Jesus is outside the life, and we went over this, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The spiritual person, which we would call the spirit-filled person, who is directing or controlling the life? Christ or the Holy Spirit, yeah. They're directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus in the life, he's on the throne. Okay, how about this? Be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Holy Spirit so that Jesus Christ may what? Dwell in your hearts through faith. What's the dwell mean? He's comfortable in your life. You have turned over your heart like a house. You've given him control of that. He has access to every room in your home so he can settle down and be comfortable in your life. This is a picture of that type of person. Self is yielding. It's not self-rule. Self yields to Jesus. And they see Jesus' influence and direction in their life. That's another way of saying that they are bearing fruit. The Holy Spirit is producing in them fruit, a different kind of life. Love, joy, peace, their obedience. They see success in, in their prayers are answered, uh, success in sharing their faith and so on. Their gifts are being used to advance the kingdom of God. All of that, that's a spiritual person. Then we have what we call the carnal. Really, the word worldly means fleshly or carnal. It's someone who has what? Received Christ because Christ is in the life. See that? But they live their life in defeat because they're trying to live the Christian life in their own strength. Look at this life and look at this life. See the dots? The dots aren't any different. So this life looks like that life, doesn't it? Now let me let that sink in for a moment because it's right there in the Bible. And Jesus is in the life, but he's not on the throne. Self is on the throne, and self directs the decisions and actions, often resulting in frustration. So this person here, they're acting like what? Mere men. Those are three kinds of people. It's right there in the Bible. Now, since Paul's time, the last time he wrote this, or the only time he wrote it actually, thousands of years ago, I have a question for us. What type of person, of these three people, predominantly fills the church's pews on Sunday morning. Is it this kind of person, this kind of person, or this kind of person? So who would say by a show of hands that would be the spiritual person? Obviously, we're assuming obviously it's not going to be the natural person, unbeliever. Who would, I, who would say by a show of hands it's the carnal person? That person predominantly, you're right, fills the church's pews on Sunday. And we're going to address that issue and why I think that is. I quoted this to you from John Piper last week in talking about repentance. He says that when the repentance has been removed from the gospel message or minimized, he says, so there is no necessary connection between saving faith and obedience. That faith in, in, for eternal life, faith in Jesus for eternal life, 
is essentially a momentary mental assent to the facts of the gospel. Fruit, or a lifestyle, is not a legitimate test of faith's authenticity. That type of teaching, he says this, is the resulting mass of disobedient nominal Christians, which is this person right here, and you've already agreed that this type of person, what, predominantly fills the church, then you're saying that most people in a church are disobedient, nominal Christians, but you're accommodated, you see, under the category of mere believer, right here, over against a disciple, a true follower of Jesus. You with me so far? He says it refers to the stage two Christian, that's the disciple, who makes Jesus Lord of his life. So in other words, if I could break down what John Piper said, it's okay. All you need to do is you can be this person or this person in the church, and you're still good with God. I'm going to ask you this. Do you think that that was Paul's intent in writing 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, up to chapter 3, verse 3? That you can stay in this state just with an intellectual agreement to doctrine and having absolutely no life change. Okay, Because you're all going to be in trouble now as this sermon goes on because you've admitted that the majority of people in here are here. Okay? Now, my question is, well, is, well, why is that the case? I wrote down, could it be that we have reaped what we have sown? Because we have removed or minimized, at the very least, repentance from the gospel message. Last week I proclaimed to you that from the beginning of the church... Until the last roughly 100 years, repentance was always included in the gospel message. And everyone get your Bibles out, turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 22. Last week we saw that repentance is an essential element within saving faith. Acts 20, verses 20 to 22. I'll give you time to get there. It says Paul preaching what Jesus preached, what John the Baptist preached, what Jesus preached, what the disciples preached, what Paul preached, what the early church preached, what Martin Luther, Westminster Catechism, all of that. Acts 20, verses 20 22. Paul says this, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house. And what did he teach? He testified both to Jews and Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance means I turn from sin to God and I believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. You can't have one Without the other. 
And I'll get into this in a moment. So in light of, of our, our um, quite frankly, we don't really understand what repentance is because it's been, I don't want, I use the word minimized, but really it's been removed in many ways from the gospel message. We're going to define repentance and spend the bulk of our time this morning defining what it is. Now, when Jesus said this to his audience, you can just listen to this, in his first preaching assignment, when he preached the gospel, this is what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4.17. He had just been tempted by the devil. He is victorious over the devil there, and he goes and he preaches, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you need to change your life, or else you're not getting into the kingdom. Now, he knew, Jesus knew, that his audience knew what true repentance was. It was just a part of Jewish life, because it was central to their thought. I'm going to quote a bunch of names of people you probably don't know, but they are way smarter than me. And I'm going to quote to you what the best of scholarship says about repentance. There's a gentleman by the name of G.F. Moore, he was a fuller seminary, but he wrote in his this monumental three-volume series just called Judaism. He wrote this, that God fully and freely remits the sins of a penitent or repentant person is a cardinal doctrine of Judaism. So a cardinal doctrine of Judaism is repentance. Jewish rabbis themselves said this, and I think you'll find this interesting. Great is repentance, for it brings healing upon the world. Great is repentance, for it reaches the throne of God. This is what your typical Jew would have heard in his time. Listen to this. The law was created 2,000 years before creation. But repentance was created before that. A man can shoot an arrow for a few furlongs. But repentance reaches the throne of God. And to the Jews, repentance is the gateway to God. This is what the rabbis taught the people. Again, G.F. Moore wrote this. The transparent primary meaning of repentance in Judaism has always been A change in man's attitude toward God and in his conduct. A moral and religious reformation of the individual. You go thousands of years into the future. A gentleman by the name of Moses ben Maimon. If you look him up, he was kind of a legend during the time of uh, medieval times. He was known as Mamonides, a medieval Jewish philosopher He became one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars of the Middle Ages. This is thousands of years after Jesus' death. He defined repentance with these words. This is his words. What is repentance? Repentance is that the sinner forsakes his sin, puts it out of his thoughts, and fully resolves in his mind that he will never do it again. I mean, that's the, just the half part of the gospel message. I take sin, I turn from it, I push it out of my mind, and I resolve never to go back. Then, concurrently, however you want to word it, you put your faith 
in the Son of God for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, of course, what will we expect to find in the Old Testament? It's filled with words calling the Jew to repentance. And this was the inherent ingrained within a, a Jesus' audience when he would preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They would know they need to change their life. And my point about all this is this, that the Jews knew what the standard of God was. Repentance is a turning from sin and a turning to God. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Ninevites. Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, meaning the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This text right there says this, that God saw what they did. According to Jonah 3.10, how does God evaluate repentance? By what you do. Your fruit. He saw what they did. That is God's standard. Here's our problem. We have not been raised in a culture that teaches life change or repentance. Just consider this. If a child is not taught by their parents that there are certain behaviors that are simply unacceptable in society and therefore they must change those behaviors, where will it be taught if not by the parents? Well, we hope it's going to be taught in school, right? (laughs) Guess what? If you're failing in a class, don't worry, because you're going to most likely pass the class. Because of what? The curve. Because they've got to keep those percentages up to keep their jobs. Shan's giving me a hearty amen to that as she's shaking her head. She knows it to be true. I know it to be true. How about athletics? It used to be that you had to perform to play, right? Well, there are no winners or losers because today everybody gets a trophy. So in in light of that, in in this culture that we live in where if parents don't teach their kids to, there are certain behaviors that aren't acceptable and you need to change, we need to begin with a biblical definition of repentance. Jesus' audience, the Jews, clearly understood what repentance was. My audience does not understand what repentance is. I learned a lot going through this, preparing these two sermons. Now, repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. It's two words. Meta meaning after, and noah meaning to understand. So it literally means an afterthought. It's translated, really, a change of mind. That's what the word repentance means in the Greek. This is where the problem begins for us. Because there are some well-respected Bible teachers, conservative, evangelical Bible teachers, that say this, repentance means to change one's mind, not one's life. Why are you confused? Is it distilling the church? You just said that, right? Is this person 
change their mind about Jesus and not their life? Do you see how this has influenced us? And that's what is, is they've taken this verse, get it back here, and they've just, they've taken it too far in my opinion. You can stay in this state and you're still good with God. I don't believe that to be true. Because if there's no fruit in your life, what does John 15 say? I am divine, you are the branches. He remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If he comes to a branch that bears no fruit, what does he do with it? He cuts it off and he burns it, meaning what? That's judgment. That, that's hell. Okay? So you can't not bear fruit. Now I admit that, yeah, and I'll get to this, that you can have moments of time where you are in a state of fleshly or carnality or you're just at odds with God. I think that's, that's, that's real. But when you sit there and you say, okay, by the basic definition of repentance, I don't have, I just have to change my mind and not my life, there's a problem with that. And the people who say that say that in regards to Jesus, repentance means to change your mind about who Jesus is and nothing more. It has nothing to do with turning from sin. It has nothing to do with abandoning self-rule has no intention of obeying God. It has no element of desire for true righteousness. It's just to change your mind about who Jesus is. And what I just read there, that those brief three or four sentences, is pretty much a description of the American church. I believe in Jesus, but don't ask me to pray in public. I believe in Jesus, but don't ask me to share my faith. I believe in Jesus. Don't ask me to stop having sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend. However, the Greek word metanoia, and this is where I really need to hammer us on this, when it is used in the New Testament, it always, 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 You get the picture here. Always speaks of a change of purpose. And it specifically always speaks of a turning from sin. Now, one of the helpful tools that pastors like me and others use in studying the Greek language is by a gentleman by the name of Colin Brown. His work is contained, again, in three volumes. It's just a massive work. And this is what it says about the Greek word metanoia, repentance. It says, the predominantly intellectual understanding of metanoia as a change of mind plays very little part in the New Testament. Rather, the decision by the whole man to turn around is stressed. Now, the other number one source that pastors use for understanding all there is about Greek words was produced by Kittle. This is a picture in my office Right, actually, right there. There are nine. That's the color purple, by the way. It's hard to see. Books written by Kittle. There, there. These nine books don't include every word in the Greek New Testament, but all the the meaningful words, and they're given an exhaustive treatment. So there are nine books. 
just for the New Testament loan and key New Testament words. So you're getting this exhaustive treatment. Okay? Every significant New Testament word in there is, is treated exhaustively. This is what this book, or these volumes, say about metanoia. And this is pretty strong stuff. Repentance, metanoia, demands radical conversion. Demands a transformation of nature. I'm quoting from you. I'm not making this up. A definitive turning from evil. A resolute turning to God in total obedience. This conversion is once for all. There can be no going back. Only advance and responsible movement along the way now taken. It affects the whole man. First and basically the center of personal life. Then logically his conduct at all times and in all situations. His thoughts, words, and acts. There's nothing else left there. The whole proclamation of Jesus is a proclamation of unconditional turning to God, of unconditional turning from all that is against God, not merely that which is downright evil, but that which in a given case makes total turning to God impossible. Now what I just read to you, a little bit heady, I get that, is what the best scholarship says about repentance. These are men that have studied Hebrew and Greek for their lifetime. have studied, know the Bible inside and out. So in other words, if I simply make a, a theology based off of one definition of the Greek word metanoia, and means to just change your mind, without looking at every other way that the word repentance is used in the New Testament, in its, in its grammar and in its context, you get two different things. So it's not just a change of mind about Jesus. It's a radical conversion from sin to God in total obedience. And that's just the first part of repentance. Are you okay? You guys got that so far? Turning from sin radically, leaving it behind, and radically turning to God. This is why Jesus, when you understand repentance, this is why he says this. If you do not what? Hate your brothers and sisters and mother and father and whole family. You are not worthy to enter the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. In other words, your love for me is so great that it makes your love for your family look like hatred. That's the radical turning from sin to a radically turning to him. Now, the second point about repentance is it's an element within saving faith. Now, by saving faith, I mean more than just belief in God. Because, again, what we think we need to do to get to heaven is simply believe in God, have an intellectual agreement with the gospel message, but not change my life. Folks, if that's the standard, evil spirits will be in heaven with God. Because do they believe in God? Yes, they do. But that does not save them. So saving faith is different than just a general faith. We saw last week in all of the verses I showed you that repentance can be used as an expression interchangeably with saving faith. You can call on someone and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You can call on someone and say, repent of your sin, embrace Christ, 
and you will be saved. It's the same message. It's simply all that salvation is. But I need to make something very clear. Repentance is not a synonym for faith. Because it doesn't mean the same thing. Repentance is inherent in believing. Believing is inherent in repentance. So terms can be used interchangeably, but each of these terms expresses a unique element of salvation. It has always historically been that way. Believing expresses just that, a trust, a confidence, a faith. Repentance expresses turning from sin towards God. man far smarter than myself, kind of a legend in many ways in, in a contemporary or conservative theology, is Louis Burkhoff. He said this in regards to faith and repentance, they are complementary parts of the same process. Complementary parts of the same process. So it's not just an intellectual agreement. It involves a total life. It's an element in saving faith. And third, and this is so important, repentance is a gift from God. Everyone turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We're familiar with this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, we are all born in sin. We are totally depraved, unable to seek God, think about God, or much less please Him. The human heart is so corrupted by sin, the Bible says in Jeremiah, that our hearts are wicked and they're beyond human understanding. None of us seeks after God. We are dead to Him. You're born that way. Yet when the Holy Spirit begins His His regenerating work within you, He makes us alive to God, and we begin to have thoughts about Him. We begin to seek Him. And then through the work of God within us, we even discover the ability to believe in God for the forgiveness of our sins when we hear the gospel message. So not only is the death of his son Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins a gift from God, that's grace, unmerited favor, receiving a gift you don't deserve, but also the ability to even believe, to have faith in God is a gift from God. You with me so far? Now, watch this. So is the ability to turn from sin and to turn to God, which is defined as repentance. That is a gift from God as well. Both the Old and New Testament affirm this. I'll read this verse to you because it'll take you forever to find Lamentations. It would take me forever to find Lamentations. But this is what is written in in the Jewish New Testament commentary. It says this, The Jewish understanding of repentance is that each individual must do it, yet it requires God's grace to be able to do it. Lamentations 5.21 says this, Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Who is turning the people back 
to himself, to God. It's the Lord. Then we will be restored. That's the Old Testament thought. Here's the New Testament thought. Everyone turn to Acts 11, verses 16 to 18. This is the story of Cornelius, a Gentile, when Peter shares the gospel with him and his, the belief of his entire family in coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Peter goes back to Jerusalem to report what's happening. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. He says this, and I remember the word of the Lord, verse 16 to 18. This is Peter speaking, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, meaning the Gentiles, Cornelius and his family, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now the old disciples says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has what? He's granted what? That's that he's given them the gift of repentance. It's something that is given to you. There are other verses that mention the same thing. The point is this, as faith is a gift, repentance is a gift. You with me so far? You need a break? Okay. The fourth point about repentance is it involves a redirection of the will that results in changed behavior. This is where I think it'll get experiential for you because you'll, you, you know this, you've experienced this, or at least I hope you have. Repentance is not merely sorrow for sin. How many of you have sinned and felt sorrowful for it? Please, everyone, raise your hands. How do you have sinned and felt sorrowful for it, but really haven't changed your life? You can raise your hands. Okay. Repentance is beyond just mere sorrow for sin, although genuine repentance always has sorrow. But repentance is a choice to forsake all unrighteousness and then to pursue holiness. It is the work of God which God produces in you when he saves you. So first of all, when you are repenting of sin, there's an intellectual aspect. We recognize our sin, recognize that sin offends a holy God, and that we are personally responsible for our sin and guilt. That is inherent kind of in an explanation of the gospel. You're convicted of your sin, and who's doing that work? The Holy Spirit. Okay. It's offensive to your sinful, it offends God, and you're sort of punishment for that sin. It recognizes that Christ died for my sin and that he, as God, wants to rule my life. That's just the first part of repentance, intellectual. But it also has an emotional part. The intellectual recognition of sin produces what? Sorrow and shame. You ever felt shameful for your sin? Raise your hand. Good. But that is supposed to lead to change. So it moves beyond remorse to action. Everyone turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. I want to give you an illustration of this. And you will really, I think, relate to this verse. Did I put that? I don't think I did put it up there. No, I did not. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. 
He, he writes this, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful. Again, Paul speaking to the Corinthians. I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God. So that you might not suffer loss of anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So we see two types of repentance there. For behold, or two types of sorrow. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So verse 9, he identifies, that is Paul, two kinds of sorrow. A worldly sorrow that leads to what? Death. You see that? There's a godly sorrow that produces repentance that leads to what? Salvation. So we see from the very beginning, repentance is something beyond sorrow or remorse. Plenty of people feel sorrow for their sin, but their behavior never changes. You know people like that. You have children that are like that, most likely. And there's parts of you, parts of me that are like that. In verse 10, Paul describes what repentance looks like. It says, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Now, what does that mean? Let me explain it to you. It's a repentance, and when look at me, because this is very important, that never changes. Now, do you remember what I said in this, right here in these books, what they said about the Greek word for repentance, metanoia? It's a once-for-all, no-going-back decision. This is what Paul's talking about here. It's a repentance without regret. You don't regret believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That makes sense so far? That's a repentance without regret. Unfortunately, I have an example, and a recent example, of an individual who regretted his repentance. In 1997, 20-year-old Joshua Harris authored the best-selling book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Propelled by the success of this book, Harris eventually served for many years as senior pastor at Covenant Life Church, a megachurch in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and held a position at the Reformed ministry called the Gospel Coalition. Some of you have heard, I think, of, of um, Joshua Harris. A little bit of a controversy for us in campus ministry at the time because we didn't teach what he was teaching in this book, A Kiss Dating Goodbye, because he basically taught that you enter a relationship through a group of friends and a friendship. Okay, we were teaching that if you like somebody, men, you like a lady, you take a risk. You make your intentions known. And if she stomps on your heart, she stomps on your heart. You get back up and you go out again if you think she's worth it. This is what he was teaching. And he'll later admit that he had never dated before, but he wrote this book as an authority. And he regrets writing the book now. But it was a huge Issue and it was a um, a very popular book and youth pastors and jumped all over it and it was being taught to these kids in youth groups across the country. But he stepped down from his position as a senior pastor in at a mega church in Maryland 
and from the position on the Reformed Ministry of the Gospel Coalition in 2014. He wrote this, that is Joshua Harris, on his Instagram account on July 19, 2019. We're, me and my wife, writing to share the news that we are separating and will continue our life together as friends. In recent years, some significant changes have taken place in both of us. It is with sincere love for one another and understanding of our unique story as a couple that we are moving forward with this decision. They're divorcing. We hope to create a generous and supportive future for each other and for our three amazing children in the years ahead. Thank you for your understanding and for respecting our privacy during a difficult time. Now, I don't know the details that it wouldn't even, you know, let me just say this. There are two basic biblical reasons to get divorced in the eyes of God. What are they? One spouse commits adultery. The other one is an abandonment of the marriage. And even if there's adultery, what is the heart of God? That there would be forgiveness and that the relationship would be restored. That there wouldn't be a divorce because what God has brought together, that no man, okay? Now, I don't know what happened if one of them was unfaithful or not, but they clearly are, and they are now and still are divorced. Now, one week later, from July 19th, on July 26, 2019, Joshua Harris wrote this on his Instagram account. Again, this was July 2019. My heart is full of gratitude. I wish you could see all the messages people sent me after the announcement of my divorce. His heart is full of gratitude because he's divorced. They are expressions of love, though they are saddened or even strongly disapprove of the decision. I'm learning that no group has a market cornered on grace. This week I've received grace from Christians, atheists, evangelicals, evangelical straight people, LGBTQ people, and everyone in between. Of course, there have also been strong words of rebuke from religious people. I'm just going to put Jesus in that religious people. Category two. He called it what it is. While not always pleasant, I know they're seeking to love me. There have also been spiteful, hateful comments that angered and hurt me. I just can't help but think, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees when we went through the Are You Ready sermon series? Do you remember that? I think it was some direct words, wasn't it? That would be hurt, hurtful, wouldn't it? Grow up. What's at stake there is hell. Yeah, I've got to get in your face because it's that serious. Anyways, I digress. Going on. The information that was left out of our announcement about our divorce is that I have undergone a massive shift in regards to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Martin Luther said that the entire life of believers should be repentance. There's beauty in that sentiment, regardless of your view in God. I have lived in repentance for the past several years, repenting of my self-righteousness, my fear-based approach to life, the teaching of my books, my views of women in the church, and my approach to parenting, to name a few. But I specifically want to add to this list now 
To the LGBTQ plus community, I want to say that I am sorry for the views I taught in my books as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality, for not affirming you and your place in the church, and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. How many of you knew that this had taken place or heard about it? Now, when we read something like this, in light of 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, there is no conclusion other than this. Joshua Harris regretted his repentance. You see that? And he's gone on to embrace what now? I mean, this is heartbreaking. But it's just, it was just, like, do I put this in the sermon or not? It just so perfectly illustrates a repentance with regret. I would say that Joshua Harris believed, right? But he never repented. I think he is a product of the watered-down gospel that has been proclaimed in many ways. True repentance is what? A once-for-all, no-going-back decision. That's how it's defined in the Bible. Now, the article went on to say that as for his divorce, that he shows no sign of remorse or intention to restore his union with his wife. A repentance with regret. Now, continuing with our close with this in terms of 2 Corinthians 7, Paul goes on to further define repentance in verse 11. What does he say? What earnestness, he writes. Now, what is that? What does he mean by that? It's an eagerness for righteousness. Godly sorrow produced an eagerness to do what is right. That's repentance. An energy to do what is right. Where does that energy all of a sudden come from? The Holy Spirit within you, giving it and motivating you, compelling you. What vindication, he writes. The Greek word for vindication is apologia. Of course, we get what word from that? Apologetics. So it's a, a, a verbal defense. What it really means is a strong desire to prove that your confession of Christ is real. You want everyone to know of your repentance. He goes on. What indignation. You know what that means, right? You to be angry. But what are you angry about when you repent? Sin and the shame that it produces. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong and everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. In other words, if you ever messed up, you've been so, you've sinned and you find yourself sickened about it and you're angry at yourself and you are Determined not to do that again, you relate to that? That is a repentance without regret. That's genuine repentance. There is this evidence of the reality of your repentance. So repentance involves the intellect, a recognition of my sin, the emotions, the sorrow and shame for my sin. You actually will feel that, but the will as well, a purposeful, changed life. And that leads to the final point. 
Do you need to stand up? Are you awake still with all that food that is digesting? You guys good? Okay. This is kind of, I just was building to this point a lifestyle of repentance. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses. Remember that from last week? He nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, said this, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying repent, meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. So the whole life is an act of repentance. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which I quoted last week, asked this in question number 16. And you'll relate to this, as I do, and I'll have to translate some of it for you because the language is not easy to understand. Do such as truly repent of sin never return again unto the practice of the same sins which they have repented of? In other words, if I struggle, continue to struggle with sin, do I turn back to those sins? And the answer is, number one, such as truly repented, a genuine repentance of sin, do never return to the practice of it so as to live in a course of sin as they did before. In other words, I return to sin and I live a life like it was if I had never turned from it. And where any, after repentance, do return unto a course of sin, it's evident sign that their repentance was not of the right kind. What kind of sorrow was it? So sorrow that leads to salvation or sorrow that leads to death? That's a sorrow that leads to death. The other answer is number two. Some who have truly repented of their sins, although they may be overtaken and surprised by temptations, so as to fall into the commission of the same sins which they repented of, yet they do not lie in them. They do not continue in sin. But get up again, and with bitter grief bewail them. I have great sorrow and grief and anguish because of my sin. And turn again to the Lord. In other words, if I continue in sin, after claiming to be a Christian, my repentance was not real. My faith in Jesus Christ is not real. But when I do sin, I grieve over it, repent of it, and turn to God. So as your repentance becomes an ongoing way of life, because you still wrestle with sin. If you don't think you wrestle with sin, raise your hand. And if you're married, I'll talk to your spouse afterwards, and they'll give me the goods on you. The repentance that begins at salvation starts a progressive, lifelong process of confession of sin. This is why John wrote, in in speaking to believers in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now watch this. Do you want to know what active, continuous, or what the active, continuous attitude of repentance produces? What does it produce? Well, Jesus tells us in his very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it produces a poverty spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because what is theirs? The kingdom of heaven. There's the mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning what? Their sin. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So this poverty of spirit, the mourning, the meekness, and the hunger for righteousness, 
that characterizes true believers, according to Jesus in Matthew 5. That's a lifestyle of confession and repentance. Does that make sense so far? Good. Now, confession and repentance doesn't stop there. It manifests itself in your prayers. Matthew 6.12 says this. Why would, we be have to, why would Jesus say to do this if you're a believer? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What do you need to be forgiven of? But your ongoing sin. So God provide confession and repentance as an antidote to that. So when we go before the Lord, we express sorrow for our sins and again confess our absolute dependence upon Him alone for salvation and personal holiness. And wrapping up, finally, here is an Old Testament example taken from the life of King David illustrating the need for ongoing confession and repentance. Now, would anyone here doubt that David in the Bible was a believer? So where is he right now? He's in heaven, right? Yet there was a time in his life when David cherished sin in his heart. It was the time of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. For one year, David refused to confess his sin and repent. And during that year, no psalms were written. So in other words, at that time, fellowship with God, not the relationship, but fellowship with God was non-existent. This is what he wrote in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5. In fact, turn there. Psalm 32, 3 through 5. And we're closing with this in Psalm 51, and then the sermon will be over. But your work is not done this morning. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This was written after he was confronted by his sin by Nathan the prophet, in which he confessed and repented. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity or the guilt of my sin. So what is David doing here? He's confessing and repenting of his sin. He was called on it. He agrees with God, I've sinned. And he's generally sorry for it, and he confesses it. And God forgives him. Turn to Psalm 51. And if you get there in time, you can see that in the very note on top of, it may have this note on the top of Psalm 51, it talks about this was written after Nathan the prophet confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba. And you will notice, by the way, different aspects of the elements of repentance in Psalm 51 that I just went over with you. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Well, folks, his transgressions were already were forgiven, right? But experientially, he needed them gone. He says, God, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Who is doing the washing here? God is. Thus, repentance is what? A gift from God. So he said, God, I want to experience you again. Cleanse me, he's praying. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What I say repentance is? An intellectual understanding of what your sin is? And that you sinned against God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. True confession repentance, by the way, folks, I didn't include this, but it's true, it accepts the consequences. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I understand that I am a sinful person. In, in sin did my mother conceive me. Contrast that. Behold, though God, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. A contrast between sin and lies and deception in the truth. Verse 7, again, who is doing this? Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David can't do that. Can he? So he's crying out to God for what? He's already been positionally forgiven, right? He's in heaven. But he wants to experience that in the fellowship to be restored. The hunger is there for God. And God's doing his work. So he's crying out to God. And notice what he hasn't heard for a while. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God is not breaking his bones literally, but his hand of conviction is heavy upon him so that he will confess his sin and repent of his ways and the fellowship will be restored. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And this is what we want, verse 10. And this is something God can only do again. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. In other words, the desire to do what is right. He desired to do in his flesh what was wrong. Lust, adultery, lies, murder. Now he desires to do what? Righteousness. And that comes from who? That's part of the gift of repentance, a desire to do what is right once again. God, I don't want to be out of your presence, so cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, which could be done in the time of the Old Testament, because not everybody had the Holy Spirit. Saul, the king before him, had the Spirit. He sinned. What happened? The Spirit was taken from him and given to who? David. And this is what he says. This is a result of repentance, of confession and repentance. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you remember when you were first saved? You were, if you were generally saved, remember what it felt like? Didn't it feel good? Feel the joy? Do you feel that now? And if you don't, why? Probably because there's unconfessed sin that you haven't repented of. Cleanse yourselves, confess, repent. He will restore the joy of, it's not your salvation, it's his salvation. 
You'll be so grateful once again that he has chosen to save you. And that he will also uphold me with the willing spirit. I will continue in righteousness. All of that is a gift from God. That's part of the experiential gift of repentance. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 said what? Before the coming of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What are we remembering this month? What are we celebrating on Wednesday of this coming week? The birth of our Savior, our King. And he said, he's coming, prepare the way for him. Get the roads ready. In other words, there's heart work that needs to be done, is really what he was saying. And now we have an opportunity to put that into practice this morning. And so what we're going to do, and I mentioned this last week, is I want you to bow your heads in prayer. And if you feel like it, you can come forward and either to yourself or to God privately. Or if you want to talk to somebody, you need to confess your sin and repent. We're going to have a time of that this morning. I didn't want to give you all this information without you actually doing something with it. In other words, what I am saying here is this. You cannot stay like this. And I told you before, and you guys got yourself in this pickle at the very beginning of the sermon, this person predominantly fills what? That means who? <laughs> and myself included at times, okay? I don't want that. Do you want that? Now is your time to deal with that. So I prayed all week something different. I hope you feel awful. I hope you feel convicted because I ask the Spirit to convict you of your sin. For this moment to come and to confess. It is a joyful thing. I've been practicing the last two weeks confessing my sins. Being real critical of my life. Things that I normally wouldn't think of, he's been bringing to my, as I wait upon him, bringing to my mind things I need to confess. And then when the temptation comes back, resolutely, Resisting it and turning from it. And I'm asking you to do the same. So I'm going to pray and it's going to be silent and you can come forward if you want as the Spirit moves. And I may end up just closing the time without a closing song because we're going a little late in time. But bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to pray for you and then we'll, I'll close at an appropriate time. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and do your work of conviction. Right now, in Jesus' name, amen.
Lord Jesus, may we create a house for you in our hearts where you have access to every square inch of our home. Nothing is withheld from you, and you can come and comfortably 
live in our hearts, in our lives. And just relax. Because everything is where it should be. You're in total control. And you're pleased. Father, may it be said of us, just as it was said of your Son, that this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Cleanse us from our sins. Convict us, Holy Spirit, of a harsh word or of an impatient spirit or of a lustful thought or of a gossiping word, whatever it may be. May we keep short accounts with you. And may we confess and repent and grant us the godly sorrow that leads to repentance and to salvation. We prepare for the coming of our King this season. And all God's people said, Amen. Merry Christmas. I expect to see everybody here Tuesday night. If not, have a great Christmas and a Happy New Year. A blessing. And the bed.